beautiful singing. Um, that echo worked out really well. Uh, we have some beautiful voices in here. Um, well, please take your Bibles and uh, turn to the Gospel of John again. We are um, still going through the whole Gospel of John. Um, it's been a joy to read through it on, on the mornings and, and also to study through it. And I just find it super, uh, just a super strong strengthening of my faith. And I hope you do as well, because uh, what we're being constantly reminded of here in the Gospel of John, even as we read through it and study it, is of who Christ is. And, and that really is uh, the question that each of us need to be able to answer. Uh, the one question that you need to be able to give an answer to is, who is Jesus Christ? If you are going to be saved, if you are going to be redeemed, um, if you are going to know the Savior, uh, the answer is, the question is, who is Jesus? And how you answer that makes all the difference of, in the world. A lot of people are asked that question, or they ask themselves, who is Jesus? And you'll hear all kinds of answers. It's a good teacher. It's a good moral teacher, a good moral example. And if you ask them, well, what do you think Jesus does for you? They'll say, well, I think Jesus gives me a, a good picture of how to live a good life, a life that's pleasing to God. And so uh, my aim in life, they may say, is to uh, do what Jesus would do. So I, I aim to live as best I can like Jesus with the hope that if Jesus was accepted by God because he lived such a good life, then if I follow Jesus as best I can, then God will look at me and let me enter into heaven because I did as good as I could. That's obviously not the gospel, and that's not uh, who Jesus is. Was Jesus a good teacher? Yeah. Was he a moral authority? Yeah. Was Jesus sent to give us an example to follow and to live by? Yes, he does do that as well. But that has nothing in one sense to do with how you and I are saved. We are saved because Jesus is much more than a good moral teacher. Jesus is God incarnate as we've been singing. Jesus is God come down to take on flesh so that he might go as our representative to give his life to die in our place for our sin. He became man so that he might become the savior of men. This is a story and a gospel and a hope unlike any other in the world. Take any religion in the world and you will not find a God as gracious and good and loving as our God. That the one who created you and me would actually love in such a way that he would come to give his life as a ransom. That is the good news we're studying. And the more we go through the Gospel of John, the more we see that Jesus is who he said he is. And we will be reminded of that over and over and over again. And so 
as we said last week, this whole gospel, first part of the gospel, especially in 1 to 12, is uh, a gospel of signs. It's filled with signs of what Jesus did to prove that he is God incarnate and to prove that he is the Messiah. In fact, there are eight specific signs that Jesus does in these first 12 chapters. He puts his glory on display, and we saw the first sign last week. Jesus put his glory on display by turning water into wine at a wedding feast that he was invited to. The sign revealed Jesus' divine power to rule over the laws of nature. I'm, I'm not a wine connoisseur, nor have I ever made wine, uh, but our brother Fidel reminded me last week after the message that the fermentation of process of wine takes time. It doesn't just happen overnight. It, it, it takes, I mean, some wines, I would imagine, months and months and months to ferment as it goes and it turns into alcohol and it, and it becomes uh, the beverage, whatever wine it is. It, it's a long process. And here Jesus, in a moment, wills the water into wine. He displays his divine glory and power by doing that, overriding the laws of nature. And so this, as we saw last week, pointed to Jesus and his power. He is the long-awaited Messiah. And the fact that he was at a wedding also pointed to him as the bridegroom who came for his bride. So the wedding was a fitting way to begin his ministry pointing to the arrival of the messianic age where the goodness of the Lord would come in abundance and the wine would flow abundantly and freely. This is what we saw last week in Jesus and the sign of turning water into wine. Well, the passage we're looking at now that follows that miracle is not one of the eight miraculous signs, such as turning water into wine, that display his power, but it's a sign in a different sense in that Jesus' next act after that miraculous sign is to cleanse the temple and then to present himself as the true temple of God. And so Jesus displays his glory here in this passage by revealing that he, as the Messiah, has a divine passion for righteousness. So his passion and desire for righteousness is a picture of the passion and desire of God for righteousness. That's 12 to 17. Then you see his divine authority to cleanse the temple and to present himself as the true temple. So Jesus' divine authority to do this is a picture that he is not like some ordinary man, but he is a divine authority. That's 18 to 22. And thirdly, you see his divine knowledge of the human heart in verses 23 to 25. So if you want to take some notes, divine passion, 12 to 17, divine authority, 18 to 22, and divine knowledge, 
verses 23 to 25. So let us, let us pray and ask the Lord to bless the hearing and the study of his, of his word this morning. So let, join me in prayer, and then we will read God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word that you have given to us, for the word that we are about to read and to study and to reflect on. We pray, God, that we would be enabled by your spirit to see Jesus clearly this morning, that we would look at this account given to us by John and the cleansing of the temple, and we would see Jesus for who he truly is. We pray that if there are eyes that are still blinded in this place to the reality of who Christ is, that you would open their eyes. We pray, O oh God, that you would grant humility for those that are here to humble themselves before Christ and to see his glory. We know, Father, that you can see into the hearts of men and women. And we know, Father, that nothing can be hidden from your sight. And so we pray that there would be a true profession of faith here and a true belief in the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is and that we would honor him with our lips and our voices and our, our songs and our hearing of your word and with our very lives, Father. Help us to believe and to, um, to turn to Christ, our Lord and Savior. Help those who have not yet to do that this morning. Uh, bless your word and the reading of it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body when, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That is the reading of God's word. And so let's begin with verse 12. After this miracle, Jesus went down to Capernaum 
According to the other Gospels, Jesus and his family had already moved from Nazareth to Capernaum by the beginning of his public ministry. You can see that in Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4. And Mark 6 even tells us that Jesus had uh, sisters and he had brothers, according to this passage as well. And so they had moved to Capernaum. Joseph, his dad, had probably died by this, by this time. And so Mary and his family, living in Capernaum, after the miracle that he did uh, in Cana, where they were invited to that wedding, they head over to Capernaum. And Capernaum, it's on, if you know the picture of Israel, it's on the northwest uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's about 16 miles away from Cana. And so after attending the wedding, it looks like they went there home for a few days uh, before Jesus ultimately is going to decide to make this trip up to Jerusalem for the Passover. So the Passover, he went up to Jerusalem. He goes up to Jerusalem because it's a city on a hill, and it's like the capital city for many years, so you go up to uh, the important city. And so this is the first of three mentions of Jesus going to a Passover in the Gospel of John. The other two come in John 6-4 and John 11-55. So if you know what the Passover is, and most of you do here, it's, it's that Passover of the annual sacrifice of the Lamb that commemorated God delivering Israel from Egypt. So if you look and read in Exodus, God was going to deliver them out of Egypt, and he told them before he sends the angel of death to pass over uh, the people of Egypt and to kill the firstborn, he says, I want you to sacrifice this Passover lamb um, on this evening, and when you do it, take the blood of the lamb and put it over the doorpost of your home so that when the angel of death comes through to kill the firstborn of the people of Egypt, that your firstborn are not put to death and you yourself are delivered from the angel of death, the the judgment of God on the people of Egypt. And so as a result of this, uh, this angel of death coming through in the chaos and everything that happened, God was able to deliver his people from the angel of death Uh, so that they wouldn't face God's judgment, but he was also able to deliver them out of bondage from Egypt one more time and once for all, finally, so that they would leave Egypt as free people. And so this is what the Passover is, and every year uh, the Jewish people would come together to uh, commemorate this annual feast and to remember God's deliverance of them. And so it took place on the 14th day of the lunar month, Nisan. Um, So, you know, we celebrate Easter because that's when Christ was crucified at either the end of March or the beginning of April uh, because that's when the full moon comes out. And it's at the full moon during that time, uh, which is the 14th day of the lunar month, uh, Nisan, that that it took place. And it's probably in 28 AD, and it... The Passover is followed by this week-long festival um, called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. In any case, what would happen is faithful Jewish pilgrims and worshipers 
would descend upon Jerusalem from all over the Roman world. They, they would come from everywhere. And for those that came from a long, great distance, it was much easier for them to purchase a sacrifice, whether it's an oxen or sheep or pigeons, than it was to bring them along. So you can imagine if you're coming from the other side of the Roman Empire and you're on this big pilgrimage to Jerusalem, that dragging along a sheep with you or an oxen while you're trying to get there for the Passover, it's going to make it a lot more difficult. And so what they ended up doing was these animal merchants uh, would end up setting up their stalls in the outer Gentile courts of the temple, and they would sell them. So you didn't have to bring it with you, right? They, you could come with your family, make the journey, and then if you had money you could pay for your sacrifice, your lamb, or whatever it was you were going to sacrifice when you got to the, the Jerusalem for the temple. So it was also during this time that you would pay your temple tax. So there was a tax that was supposed to be paid by Jewish males that were 20 years and older, and if they were faithful and conscientious, uh, they would come to pay their temple tax. And the way they paid their temple tax and it was received, the coinage they used was this Tyrian coinage, it's called, and it's equal to about two half shekels if you're using Old Testament terms. And so your temple tax was a half shekel. The Tyrian coin is worth two. And so that's how they would receive it. And so you usually had two people, men, would come together and they needed to exchange their money, two half shekels worth, in order to get one Tyrian coin so that they could pay for their temple tax. Okay? So what happens is when all these devoted Jewish men come and they want to pay their tax, not only are there these animal merchants to sell their oxen or sheep or lambs or whatever, uh, but you also have these money changers who were there in the temple uh, charging a fee, if you will, a percentage fee, in order to uh, do this transaction for the money so that people could pay their temple tax. And so these money changers set up shop in the temple as well, and these various coins come in, and they're charging this percentage fee for their service. So, I mean, I guess you could think of it like at the airport, you know, when you're flying international or you go to an airport and you have these these international money-changing places, and you take your currency. We do this when we go to Canada to visit Nancy's family, and we have to get Canadian money, and then they take it, and they charge you an in, in interest on it. And then, in terms of the environment there, I, I just thought of it like a big, prolonged Black Friday event in Jerusalem, right? <laughs> just got tons of people, big business, People with animals and money changers, a hustle and bustle taking place among the people, transaction after transaction, a lot of haggling for prices, money's flowing in and out, sheep bleeding, I guess, uh, sheep bleeding, oxen, I, I read is bawling, like B-A-W-L-I-N-G, never knew that, oxen ball, I guess, and then you have doves cooing, etc. So just the environment, you could just picture it. It's just really chaotic, right? It's really vibrant, really energetic. In the temple, in the temple, 
And when Jesus arrives in the temple at Jerusalem, the temple designated and set apart as a place for man to meet with God and worship him, a place set, a God, set apart for God's presence among the people, John says Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus was outraged. I don't know how else you put it. Jesus had a righteous indignation at the sight of his father's house being turned into a house of trade. Jesus was not outraged because the people were doing deceitful business and practicing extortion, which they no doubt were taking advantage of people. But that's not why Jesus is upset. That isn't his complaint. He's not coming in there and saying, oh, you money changers are charging these people too much money and turning over their table and pouring out their coins because they're being dishonest. Jesus isn't coming and saying, oh, you merchants, you're selling these sheep and oxen for these sacrifices for too much money. You're extorting the people. Get out of my temple. That's not why Jesus is mad. Jesus is mad because they had the audacity to go to his father's house where it is to be a house, a holy place, set aside for prayer and for worship, a sacred place of reverence and respect and adoration and praise for God, a place where people were to confess their sins and be contrite in spirit, a place where they were to be broken and petitioning God for mercy and forgiveness and singing praise and honor to God, this place where his father's name was to dwell and to be lifted up was profaned by worldly matters. It was brought down to an earthy sense of the ordinary day-to-day -day things of life. And Jesus was extremely upset at the sight of this too. And you can see the righteous indignation and passion that Jesus had for the honor of his father's name in that note that Jesus doesn't, he doesn't go and find a whip of cords laying around, but John says that he actually took the time to fashion one himself. Jesus saw what he saw, and then he took the time to put these cords together and to fashion a whip 
so that he could go through the temple and he could drive them out of the temple. He drives them all out of the temple, all the animals and all the people. He overturns the money changers' tables. He pours out the coins on the ground, and you can just picture people running around, grabbing coins, animals making their noises, running through the temple courts. Uh, You know what happened here in Carlsbad a few weeks ago? Money fell out of the back of that, that truck, and it spilled all over the highway, and what did people do? Everyone stops, they pull out of their car, racing around, taking money. I mean, this is how I picture it happening. Money's all over, tables overturned, people are chaotic, they're running, they're picking up money, things are running out. Jesus created a scene because Jesus was angry. He was angry. Righteous anger at the way they had defamed his father's name. And so John says, that he and the other disciples of Jesus who were there, when they reflected back on this moment, that they remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Psalm 69, verse 9. Unlike you and me, beloved, and every other man and woman that's walked on the face of the earth, We can be motivated by God's holiness and righteousness for a season, for times. There are times where we will have righteous indignation. But those times for us as men and women, they're fleeting, aren't they? We we think we honor God and we want to always honor him. But as we know in our lives and the way that we live, We are hardly consumed, hardly consumed for the name of our great God, isn't it true? We're, We're not even consumed enough to confess our sins when we commit them. We're we're not even consumed enough with his name that when we see people speaking evil of the Lord Jesus that we're even confident enough to correct them or to rebuke them, right? Jesus, as the Messiah, as God himself, is jealous for his name. And he was so consumed and had so much zeal when he saw this taking place in the house of his father that he, at the beginning of his ministry, because he does this again at the end, he, he, he will do this twice. Once here in the beginning, and the other Gospels record uh, him doing it again at, at the end, before the cross. He purifies the temple. Now, as I was reading this, I asked myself the question, and I'll ask it to you, but How should, do you think, the divine passion of Jesus for the zeal of his father's house, how should that impact the way that we approach God in worship at church? How should it impact and form the way that we think about coming into the sacred presence of God on Sunday morning? 
We don't have a Jewish temple, right? We don't have the Holy of Holies set aside. We don't have the altars. We don't have the furniture. We don't, we don't have all the things that the Jewish uh, Israelites had. But we do have God's word spoken here, and we do have Christ present here with us and his spirit in dwelling us. And so we need to give a thought to how is it that we, as God's people, when we come together, how is it that Jesus' zeal for the house of his Father should be viewed among us? And how ought we to approach God with dignity and think about the weightiness of our worship? How much more should we be careful of bringing in our worldly desires and affairs into this church where God's word is read and the Lord is present with us. Our worship should be adorned with reverence and awe and respect and holiness before God. Our worship should reflect the God that we have been invited to come into the presence of through Jesus Christ. A lot of people, especially in our culture and day and age, will turn the consumer of worship into the people. Who is the one who consumes worship? Is it you and me? Or is it God? God is the one who receives and consumes worship. But in our culture, it's turned around in such a way that we, the people, become the consumer of worship. And so what we do in our churches is we present church and God and worship in such a way that it is pleasing to me and you. And it is not given thought to, does it please God? Is this the way that God desires and wants to be acknowledged and worshipped? God wants to be acknowledged and worshipped because he needs to be, because it is who he is, as a God who is to be revered. And a God who is to be feared and a God who is to be honored, and a God who is to be respected, and a God who is to be loved, not a God that is to be brought down to be like you and me. That is not who God is. And when Jesus comes into the temple and he sees them treating the name of his father like any other man and any other name, he is righteously indignated and angry that they would defame his father in such a way and treat him as ordinary. God is not to be treated as ordinary and the place of God's people are to respect and honor God for who he is. It was an offense to God to bring his name down, to compete 
with our attention on earthly and profane things. When you come here, and I come here on Sunday morning, give heed to your heart, beloved. Give heed to your thoughts. And are you bringing in the things of the world into your time before God? Are you bringing in your money changers? Are you bringing in your taxes and your money and your, your earthly concerns? Are you bringing in what you're going to do in 30 minutes? Are you bringing in your job? Are you looking for business? Are you looking to make a name for yourself? I mean, what is it we do? And lay those things aside. Here's how, I, don't rem I mean, I know I've read these verses before, but I read them in a new understanding here in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 2. This is, this is powerful. Here's how he puts it. Solomon lived a pretty bad life. At the end of his life, he's writing wisdom. He, he's writing for the people to learn from his mistakes, so to speak, and to tell them how to live their lives in a way that pleases God. He says this, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Guard your steps. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And so here is the faithful son, passionate, jealous for the name of his father. And this was to be expected of the Messiah. Malachi 3, 1 to 3 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. He will come to his temple and he will purify it so that you might bring a righteous offering to the Lord. And that really leads us to the second point which is Jesus's divine authority over the temple. So in response to Jesus's actions, the Jewish leaders, probably the temple police, they question the authority of Jesus. And they say, 
How's that? Like that. What gives you the right, Jesus, to come into this temple to judge and condemn what we are doing? In one sense, their reaction shows they know they're doing wrong. They know in their hearts that what they're doing is not what God desires. But when they look at Jesus, they say, on what authority, Jesus, do you call us out? Who in the world do you think you are to come into this temple and tell me and our people what to do? <laughs> How about that? Hey, Jesus, what right do you have to tell us how to worship. Give us some miracle, some miraculous sign to show that you have authority to override our authority in the temple and to regulate these activities. That's what they're saying. Who are you, Jesus? Do you Are you Elijah? Are you Malachi? Are you like Zechariah? Are you Moses? Give us a sign to show us why you can do these things. Now, his coming into the temple was what? With zeal was what? A sign. It's a sign. Psalm 69.9, zeal for his father's house would consume him. Malachi 3, 1 to 3, the Messiah would come into the temple and he would cleanse it like a refiner's fire and he would purify the temple. You can even include Zechariah 14, 21 there. The temple cleansing itself was a messianic sign. God himself was calling them to repentance. But as they continue to do, they harden their heart, and in unbelief, they reject the sign that he is giving them, and they say, give us another sign. Give us a sign. You can see the blindness. They're saying, let us see who you really are. And Jesus is going to repeatedly heal people, feed people, forgive people, raise people from the dead. He is going to give them sign after sign after sign after sign. And they will continue to make excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse and reject him over and over and over again. Jesus will even tell them, you will not believe even if someone raises from the dead. Isn't it true? And when he rose Lazarus from the dead, you know what the Jewish people, the Pharisees and leaders wanted to do after Lazarus rose from the dead rather than turning to Jesus because of the sign? They actually wanted to go and kill Lazarus. They wanted to get rid of Lazarus because Lazarus and his resurrection by Jesus pointed to who Jesus was. And so these, these people, as they're seeing Jesus, don't want a sign. And so Jesus, they don't really want a sign. They just want to know, who do you think you are? And in verse 19, Jesus answers them in this mysterious way, a kind of a veiled response as Jesus sometimes does in parables. And Jesus says to them, okay, you want a sign. 
destroy this temple. Not I will destroy it, he said, which they accused him of saying in the trial. But he says, destroy this temple, whoever, you, whoever, destroy it. And in three days, I will rise it up. So they hear this. They're looking at the temple. And their response is like, yeah, right. 46 years we've been building this temple. It wasn't even finished yet. For 46 years. And you're going to raise it up in three days? Now, could Jesus have done it? Sure could have. He gave them a test. I'll tell you what. You want to know who I am? You want to sign? On a literal level, go level the temple right now. Tear it down, destroy it however you want, and I'll rebuild it in three days for you. That's the sign I'm, I can give to you. And of course, they don't get it. They're like, "Who? you can't do that. And Jesus is like, yes, I can. I can physically put this temple back together. Go ahead and do it. Now, of course, they're, they're not getting it. They're not seeing it. And he gives them a chance. They reject his offer of a sign. And of course, Jesus' point was that he could do this physical temple, but his real point was to get them to understand that rather than focusing on all the material aspects of your worship and your earthly things of this world, Jesus is saying, I have really come in order to give my own body to be sacrificed and buried and risen again on three days because I am the true temple. Jesus is the temple of God. Jesus could have given them another sign, but Jesus came for one purpose. Jesus came to be crucified, to die to shed his blood, to be buried, and to rise again. And his hour had not yet come, and they wouldn't have accepted him anyway, but it is the sign of his resurrection that shows that Jesus has authority to cleanse the temple because Jesus is the temple of God that has come to John 1.14, to dwell among us. The word became flesh, and as we saw, he tabernacled among us. God came down into our presence. And so at the end of the day, at the end of the day, they reject the sign of his resurrection, which he points them to here in his response John says Jesus' true disciples eventually came to understand that, what he was, that this is what he was referring to after he rose again. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And then notice what he says there. And they believed, what? The scriptures? And the word that Jesus had spoken. One in the same thing. God's word is Jesus' word. 
And when they remembered this after his resurrection, they said, wow, this is what Jesus said. This is what God's word said. And their hearts were, no doubt, strengthened and their faith strengthened by that. And so the point is, I think we should draw out of this is that the authority lies within Jesus himself. I will raise it up, Jesus says, after three days. Not prayers to God will raise it up. Not a strong faith will raise it up. Not some prophet will raise it up. But Jesus says, I will raise this body up again. That's incredible. And so in the second place, the true disciples came to understand, as I said, that Jesus is also not only powerful enough to raise himself from the dead, but he is the true temple of God. Do you remember John's vision of a new heaven and a new earth in Revelation 21? When he sees the new Jerusalem, here's what he says in verse 22 of Revelation 21. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Oh, Garden of Eden restored, paradise restored, a place in Christ where you can have eternal communion and fellowship with God through Christ our Lord. The true temple is not the stones and beauty of Jerusalem's worship center, but it's in the resurrected body of Jesus. And through him alone, we have access to God, to the throne of grace. R.C. Sproul put it like this. Christ is the temple, and all men are commanded to come to him in order to worship and serve the one true God. And our final point, real quick here, is Jesus not only has a divine passion and zeal for God's righteousness and for his Father's house, he not only is the temple and has a, a divine authority in worship, but he actually has divine knowledge of men who come before him. This is why he could rebuke them because he knows what's in man's heart. So John goes on to say, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, this is, this is important. He says many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. That's to say, many said, yeah, I, yeah, I believe in Jesus, sure. Look at all the signs he's doing. John says, many believed in him. The problem was that they're saying that they believe in him. There was a problem with that belief. They were believing in him based off of really these signs that they were, see they were seeing, which is not in and of itself bad but they never actually truly rested their hope and faith in him. They just believed in his name. He's a good man. 
He's a faith healer. He's a good teacher. But they didn't entrust themselves to his saving person and work. This is why John goes on to say in verse 24 that while many believed in him, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man. Jesus needed to be born witness to while on earth because we are so blind to see him, but Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, John says, because he knows everything about man. He knows what is in the heart of men. Jesus knows his sheep, and his sheep follow him. They know him because they know his voice. And when they hear the voice of Jesus, they come to Jesus to follow him and to believe on him, not because of the signs and the things that they were being given, but because they know the shepherd. And they believe in him, and Jesus loves them in return and cares for them. You see, you might say you believe in the name of Jesus for all kinds of reasons, but have you truly entrusted yourself to Jesus as Lord and Savior? Do you love him? Have you found peace with God through him? Have you accepted him as your Lord and Savior? And have you received the forgiveness of sins that he offers by his sacrifice on the cross and the shedding of his blood and his rising again? Is that your hope for salvation in Christ alone or not? That is what it means to believe in Jesus. And that's the call that he gives us this morning. Place your hope and faith in Jesus Christ alone. It is no use, and I'll just close with this. This passage tells us, beloved, that it is no use for you to pretend to believe. Why pretend? Why act? Why make it seem like you believe in Jesus when you actually don't? Because Jesus can look right in and he can see, does this man or woman actually love me or do they love something else about me? Am I the object of their faith and hope and love or not? I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Is Jesus the Son of God and the Messiah? Amen, he is. Divine zeal, divine authority, divine knowledge, Come to him, believe in his name, and you will receive eternal life. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, you are good and gracious and merciful. You are to be feared and honored, and you are to be respected and praised. We are not to think of you as a man or a woman or, or as some earthy, profane thing. And we are not to confuse our love for the things of this world with our love for you. You're to be elevated above all of these things in our hearts and in our minds. You are to be loved and adored before any other thing in this world. Even our Lord says, if you would follow me, you must be willing to deny your mother and brother and sisters and fathers in order to love me and follow me. Your word says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. And God, we seek to do that, and we are thankful that you have redeemed us in Christ in order to do that. And we know, Father, that we have at times profaned your gathering place here among your people with things of this world. We know, Father, that we have cherished things in our hearts that would have brought you displeasure. And if Jesus was physically present here with us, that he would drive them out of our heart and from our presence. But we also know Oh God, that through your spirit who is dwelling in us, that Christ truly is present here with us. And we ask, oh Lord, that you would drive those things from our heart as we confess them before you. And help us to love you and to worship you in a way that pleases you. And in a way that is directed by you and your word and in a way that honors you. We pray, Father, that we would leave this place being comforted by the fact that we are in Christ, the new temple, the true temple, that we are able to come boldly before your throne of grace and we are able to worship you and praise you and give thanks to you in humility. We thank you for that and we pray that we would live in such a way that when we leave this gathering as a church, that we would not leave thinking that we are now free to live any way that we want, but that even outside of these walls, we should be mindful of the fact that you are present with us and we are in Christ. And so we must also live our lives outside of these walls in a way that honors you and pleases you. Help us to remember that, Father, to remember that the world is watching us and if we take the name of your beloved son upon ourselves, that we should live in such a way that honors him. We thank you for giving us the faith to believe. We thank you for granting to us something that we could not have done on our own and for saving us. And we pray that you would grant that same faith and trust to those, to all those who are here this morning, if they have not yet believed, that Christ might be honored in their hearts and lives. We give you all the glory, Father, and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.